Today, the first attempt at a round-the-world trip is cut short due to, well, running out of fuel. But the second attempt is done in six months in spite of a serious medical condition that makes international travel a problem, not to mention on a motorcycle. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We got a good one for you. Hi, I'm Sam Manning. I'm Phil. Ted And you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Okay, before we get going, I want to thank some sponsors that helped bring this episode of Adventure Rider Radio to you. The first one is Max BMW Motorcycles. They've been doing it since 2002. That's Outfitting Adventure Riders. And they have got a load of parts and accessories online that they can ship to your door. Get their e-rider newsletter. It's free. MaxBMW.com. That's M-A-X-B-M-W.com. Best Rest Products is where the number one tire pump in the business for us motorcyclists comes from. It's called the Cycle Pump, made in the USA, has lifetime warranty. They also distribute the Google Tech filters for North America. The website, cyclepump.com. That's Best Rest Products at cyclepump.com. And Green Chili Adventure Gear, making American-made heavy-duty innovative luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into luggage using the strapping system. GreenChiliADV.com. That's GreenChiliADV.com. Well, you know, it's not even guesswork. It's a proven fact that you will get more miles from your chain by oiling it regularly. Here's what you got to look at. The Moto Breeze chain oiler. It's got no moving parts, got no electrical parts. It runs off of air pressure and it's got vacuum connections that take the oil down and deposit it onto a felt pad that goes directly onto your chain. An ounce of oil gets you a thousand miles or 1600 kilometers. Motobreeze.com. There's two eyes in there. Motobreeze.com. Maurice McDonald is one of those petrol heads deeply in love with two wheels. And after he spent years telling his mates that one day he's going to hit the road and travel the world on his motorcycle, he finally does. But he doesn't get very far before he ends up turning back because he ran out of fuel. Then he had to explain that to them. On the second attempt, well, that's another story. My name's Maurice McDonald or Morris McDonald, depending on how you want to say it. I have difficulty with that even myself. Uh, from uh, Originally from Glasgow in Scotland, but now living uh, close to uh, Loch Ness in Scotland. Welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. 
Thank you. So is Morris, a, like, is that an alias? Is that what you use depending on where you're going? Uh, difficult with, with a last name like McDonald's uh, at school with the name Maurice, you're either going to be a hairdresser or a photographer. So luckily I took the second one. Uh, it's a French spelling, even though it, I think it's a Scots name in, in reality, but nobody knows really how to pronounce it. Is it Maurice if you're getting a bit too artistic or is it just General Morris, depending on where you are in the scheme of things? So what do you go with, Maurice or Morris? Depends where I am in the world. Uh, uh, and when it's written down, you end up having to say, because I'm in a, this bizarre situation where other people are correcting how I say my own name. So they, they tell me that it's pronounced Maurice. And I thought, well, yeah, I know. But there's this a weird situation of Scottish version come global version come European version. So it just has this, uh, this weird start to any conversation, you know, hey, how do you pronounce it and how do you want to spell it? You're turning out to be a very difficult interview for me because I'm not sure that I can. I'm not sure I can continue beyond here because I can't even get your name right. I don't know whether you're Morris or Maurice. Who am I speaking with? Well, you can, you can go with the artistic Maurice because I think it probably uh, maybe that French Canadian and, and France <laughs> and all the other parts of the world who have that 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 type of name, you know. So okay, well that's yeah, what, we'll, we'll run with Maurice then. Okay. You mentioned your photographer <laughs> with with your name, Maurice. What do you do for photography? Uh, news photography, news and features, and started off in uh, uh, local newspapers and worked my way up to to national newspapers and agencies. And I I worked for uh, uh, UK's version of AP, which is the Press Association. So I worked all over the world covering the Iraq War and Africa and various other places. So it's been a, a bizarre from local newspaper photographer right through the full spectrum of, of uh, different newspapers uh, to broadsheets and tabloids to, to magazines and then covering different uh, major events and, and history around the world. So it's been an interesting and, and a creative career, but on its way out in many respects because of, of the, the iPhone and every other person that uh, has something that can take an image in their hand that seems to get to to, to picture it just quicker on some of my stuff. So it's just one of these things. You're a, a motorcycle rider, I know. Are you a photographer when you ride your bike too? Not really. I take I take my kit with me, but then it turns into a bit of a busman's holiday where I can't, for some reason, get off my motorcycle. As soon as I get on it, I will ride for 12 hours continuously if need, if need be because I'm enjoying it so much. I find it very difficult to stop and take pictures. I find it very difficult to go, as I said, to even go off the bike. So I end up lugging all this kit about and then I'm in no mood to take any pictures because as, as I think it was, as anyone who wants to take a picture, when you see the image, it's in that fleeting second. And if you haven't, organize yourself and got your kit and if it's buried somewhere you just don't have the the energy to start digging it out and by the time you have done the moment's gone and the image is gone so you just so that's that's a difficult one it's not like being in a car where you can just jump out immediately and you've got everything sitting there you know you've got to go and find stuff on your bike or if it's as badly packed as my bikes are always so it's uh, there's always stuff somewhere that you can never find when you need it so i can totally relate because that's me as well i'm i'm out to ride and i i always yes. take a camera either it's in my phone or my my gopro stuck in my pocket i just can't be bothered most of the time to stop to get a shot to me it's all about just the ride and yeah so, so I sometimes regret that. I many times regret that yes. thinking I, sh I wish I'd got a shot of that or I wish I'd, you know, got a little video clip or something, but then think, oh, well, whatever. Uh, I, I think the only reason I think that is because I often uh, realize that I don't remember most of my rides. <laughs> you know, they fade into memory. <laughs> so 
it's just a momentary well, experience. That's it. That, that could be a positive and a negative. Is the fact that you could ride that ride again and you, you haven't, you've, you've forgotten you've done it. So you get another chance at doing mm. something. No, I wasn't uh, saying, like, it's not an actually a, a senior moment that I'm having. <laughs> I, I just mean like, like, why would you remember it? It's just another, another nice day. You went for a ride, maybe, you know, down a trail or, or into a place, yeah, you no. know, it's, it's one of those. I agree with that. We do get into that 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 process of memorializing everything that we ever do. Yeah. You know, as we get to the you know when it's just. Hence, why I, I'm trying to build a website just now for my last trip. It's just I haven't even really got through it yet because uh, I, it was interesting to me and it was interesting to, to fellow uh, motorcyclists. But trying to explain to other people, they go, oh, yeah, they don't really get the the, the impact of where you were and what you've done and, and the bizarreness that, that, that ensues when, when you get involved in, in some motorcycle trips. So it's, it's, it is difficult to, 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 to pen it and, and visualize it for other people who haven't really been in that uh, situation before. Well, so. well, and also too, nowadays there's so many photographs out there. There's so many people putting up shots on Instagram and everywhere else um, oh. to, to try and make something meaningful or that's going to really, you know, tell a story. It's, I'm not sure is it's, it's worth my effort. Like, you know, my, I had dinner last night and it was great, but to shoot a picture of this dinner and, and <laughs> post it <laughs> to tell people. I great, yeah. I think I'm well, just it's not that it. interesting. That's the thing we, 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 everybody thinks everybody, uh, you know, when you see other people's blogs and stuff and they go, wow you know what have they been doing and 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 it's that i think we both look at ourselves going you know we've had moments in our life but we're not that really that interesting so it's more the fact that we want to do more cycling and other adventures because we want to do something that we enjoy immensely and just think about these things in many years time or recant stories over a beer or two because it just got a bit weird so i agree it's, i find it difficult to to make the the the, the process the, the jump the, from putting everything on the web and saying right this is what I did today or this is what happened to me blah 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 sometimes it's weeks and months or even years before I get it all packaged up and then mm-hmm. hey in in two thousand five you you did a, a round the world trip or you attempted to do a round the world trip that was your first attempt have you always been into doing trips on motorcycles like before this. It, 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 17 years, uh, seven, when I first passed my motorcycle test in Scotland, uh, it was uh, 17 and I got my first trail bike and I've always been interested in the Paris Dakar rally. Those bikes have never left me. The, the fact they could hold so much fuel, they could cut through the sand, they could go from continent to continent. It was all, it was always a, a thing for me. So, uh, uh, unfortunately I think like other motorcyclists, uh, I got given or I started reading Jupiter's Travels by Ted Simon, uh, a fellow, uh, uh, well, reporter now with the Sunday Times. and uh, Hor- Horrible, that, horrible book because it just does nothing it, but inspire you. Unfortunately, you, you've hit the nail on the head. <laughs> it, it just, he paints such a great picture that you just couldn't, you couldn't, you, you couldn't draw yourself away from, from the antics and mm-hmm. the stuff that he got up to and he thought, it can't be as good as that. He's obviously making it up. It's just, it's just not true. And uh, my first trip was seventeen. Was uh, was on my one two five cc motorcycle from Scotland to Germany, and I went to the to the Munich Beer Festival, Oktoberfest. Unfortunately, when I got there in October, I'd missed it because Oktoberfest happens in September, so it's the last two weeks of September, the first week of October. I didn't know that. The internet wasn't around. You just, you know, you just thought Oktoberfest meant October. 
And uh, so I made it all the way through the Black Forest, all the way to Munich, only to find I get kicking the beer cans around the square because I'd missed the whole thing. But that was a <laughs> glorious trip. It was one of the best trips. Uh, it was my, my first trip on my first motorcycle. And that really uh, paved the way. As soon as, uh, with the combination of that trip and reading the book, that was it. I was done for. I've enjoyed motorcycling ever since and tried to, to do as many trips as I possibly can when 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 time time well is available because we've all unfortunately got to pay for the trips when we get out and about so was it it's ted simon's book that that gave you the idea to do your first round the world attempt uh yes it was it was definitely that it's sort of and uh unfortunately dare i say another fellow countryman old june mcgregor which every time i see it, it annoys me because uh i would love to have free a free bike uh uh, a full uh, crew behind me and any other issues dealt with by other people. But uh, so, so riding, so, so I, unfortunately I, I've got to ride solo because I just, because uh, people ask me, you know, why do you ride on your own? And I say, well, it's less people to argue with. I just, I can't, it's, we've all been on trips with one or two people and it turns into a bit of a, not a disaster, but if you have uh, not a meeting of minds when it comes to what you want to do, I just love stopping when I'm stopping, ride for as long as I want to ride. And then if I want to look at something, you make a detour and you go and look at it rather than having to have a, a bit of a shop floor meeting with other people if this is going to happen. So uh, definitely solo riding and in any continent as far as wide as I possibly can, you know. So you, with this trip that you attempted in 2005, what was it all about? Well, this, this uh, I, I left, I uh, stopped working for uh, for the Press Association because uh, unfortunately, uh, as much as I thought when I got to the, to the, the pinnacle of my career with uh, news photography uh, being sent continent to continent to continent, I think in one year I was on 50 flights. I had no idea where I was half the time and, and you, would, you were photographing stuff. And it sounds quite a sexy job, but I was, I was just, um, uh, well, just wrecked at that point. I was, I was, I was a bit of a, a husk of an, an individual. So I left that position and, uh, Africa dawned. I thought, well, this is going to be great. I could, I've had, um, an XTZ, uh, super tenery the since 1991. Uh, and I thought, this bike is going to go around the world at some point. And I always tell people that and they always look at, look at me and obviously reading this uh, Jupiter's Travels at 17 and 18 uh, gave me the, the, the oomph to do it. But you, you, I think everybody's the same. We all tell everyone our hopes and dreams and say, I'm going to go around the world at some point. And everybody always thinks, oh, that's great. And But once people have started to hear this from you for about 10 or 12 years and it starts <laughs> to become a bit of a grind. Yeah. That, 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 it's you just know, one of those stories that he always talks about. Exactly. And then you and McGregor and Charlie do their thing. And I, my eyes are starting to roll in my head. And, and because people would, because when I'd mention it again, they go all just like you and McGregor and Charlie Borman. And I'm going, yeah, I've been thinking of, I've been talking about this well before they even got their act together, you know. But, and it but makes you wonder why the producers didn't come to you and ask you to do it. Yeah, I know, I know. I've, I've been on a couple of jobs with you and McGregor, and I've yet to bring it up with them that, that they just annoyed the whole thing. The, the, the whole thing was just nuts. I think it uh, underlined that I had to get my act together because um, there's no time like the present, and unfortunately the present always just starts to slip through your fingers. Mm. So it's, it's in the, the, the next uh, step where 
I thought I'm going to take a year out and go down through Africa, up through South America, up towards Alaska, and then uh, back down or across to Europe, depending on which way it was going to go. So it was this sort of uh, bizarre situation or, you know, because the, the, the trip was definitely a case of how am I going to get this done? I had planned the full year. I got all the paperwork organized, the, the carnets for Africa, you know, South America, everything was done. But unfortunately, world events really you don't have any control of, which is the first time I've really been involved in. in I've reported on world events, but I've never been caught up in world events when you've mm. when you know you're going to see something. So. Uh, the as you're heading down towards uh, Central Africa, the, there was a fuel shortage that you wouldn't believe. So you didn't know about the fuel shortage. You didn't know about no, the, the political unrest that was going on. It was civil unrest from when you had no, um, you had no, what's the word? Well, you had no control over these things, and you wouldn't even really think about it. It's sort of uh, you see. Africa and, and the Middle East on TV and, and, and conflicts kick off and kick on and, and you think, well, that's that's just one of these things. So the it just happened to be civil unrest that stopped a fuel shortage, a major fuel shortage that turned out below the Sahara and, and into the Central Africa, uh, you know, the Congo. So I took the, the Moroccan way in of going rather than Egypt because Egypt was still getting a bit weird and, and, and people were wondering if it was going to be possible even to cross through Egypt. So I thought, well, Morocco is not that problematic as such, forgetting that that the UN is still in uh, in the bottom of the Sahara because uh, the, there's all sorts of conflicts happening there. These sort of miniature conflicts that you forget about that are actually still kicking on to this day. But uh, uh, myself and a German rider who stuck together for a bit, once the fuel ran out, I didn't realise, and I think a lot of people don't realise that when you're in uh, parts of Africa where the electricity is hard to come by. The, the, the fuel pumps are powered by uh, petrol, unleaded fuel. So the first thing to become a commodity is, uh, is is unleaded petrol. So you can get plenty of diesel, but the unleaded petrol becomes that commodity that was was a bit weird. So you myself, mean, are you saying for generators? Yeah, for generators, for getting the, mm. the diesel out of the ground. So I didn't really think about it. And why would you? You think, well, they would use electricity or they would have some sort of whatever they use. But it happened to be uh, unleaded fuel was the was the main way of getting the, uh, the the diesel out of the ground or any fuel, depending on what you were looking for. We'll, we'll talk a bit about what this fuel shortage looks like for you. Well, it looked like uh, trouble because... Uh, <laughs> When 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 you when you're you're bartering with people, the, the the first major problem we came to is once the fuel had really started to disappear, we were down to one or two liters, and then uh, we uh, some locals uh, we chanced upon gave us the impression they had some fuel, so we followed them on our fumes all the way through the back streets of of this small uh, hutted village, uh, and we eventually got to a Bedouin tent. So myself and the German rider were discussing, you know, the affairs of the day and how much the fuel was going to be. Obviously, no one's going to be a bit of bartering going on. But they wanted uh, uh, 10 euros a litre, which is uh, fairly pricey in anybody's language. You know, it could be close to nearly 10 pounds nowadays. And uh, I get, as a good as a good Scotsman, I'll barter over anything. So uh, uh, as soon as I get get into bartering mode, uh, the 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 I think the village leaders uh, elders get a bit affronted by this, and bring out a handgun and put it on the table. And I thought, have I got to buy the handgun as well? You know, so <laughs> all of a sudden, so. 
uh, so they didn't find that funny. So they, uh, so I managed to barter them down to about it was eight to uh, uh, euros a liter. So we, the pair of us, bought a liter each, and then we left with uh, with very little fuel on our bikes. So, so from beyond that point, every petrol station we went to was out of fuel. So, so we eventually just got towed behind various trucks heading south. So, if you've ever been towed behind a truck, it was like uh, land uh, water skiing with motorcycles. Oh, where you get I wouldn't to- want to do it at all, let alone be towed by somebody yeah. that I don't know. You get no choice. You just sort of you just you want to head south. Your trip's not going to be over until it's really going to be over. So so you the pair of us are on long long ropes, and we're trying not to bash into each other as we're being towed, and and through the various vehicles we totted up the mileage. We must have covered nearly a thousand miles being towed by various vehicles just to try and find fuel as we because every time we rolled into a town we go off the bikes and have a look around for fuel and there wouldn't be any and because it would just be diesel. So this impact was just going and going and going and going to a point where uh, all the other riders, I think there, there was, you know, everybody was making their own different way south, but for when I was catching them up on email, uh, uh, an email cafe is where everybody was getting to because they were striking out in different directions. Everybody's trip came to an end. The Canadians, Australians, myself, the German guy, which is not nobody. Could, unless you wanted to sit for months on end waiting for the stuff to appear, depending on where the civil unrest was going to stop, it was just unfortunate. So, so that that was my first attempt at, at, at going uh, uh, south. And probably to anybody that's heading uh, through the Sahara Desert, do not under any circumstances eat in the first Chinese restaurant that uh, is is beyond the Sahara Desert because I've never had amoebic dysentery like it. And if you ever had amoebic dysentery in a tent at uh, 30 to 40 degree heat, it's not an interesting or exciting part of your trip. That's what you ran into uh, before you ran out of fuel. Uh, yes, yes. If I backtrack a little bit, that, that was just nuts. I've never... I've never really had any issues with uh, stomach or other uh, parts of your body not want to cooperate, but. Well, hang on, Maurice. That was, that was 2005. You don't think that Chinese food restaurant maybe cleaned up its act? <laughs> I mean, to be well, fair. Uh, well, see, when I asked people about the Chinese restaurant, they said, nobody eats there. They just go to drink. So, <laughs> so I think that, that. So that's what that, happened. You came in and they're thinking, we got to get some food for this guy. Yeah, it's the only reason that we ate there is because myself and the German, because uh, I had the only GPS between, because for some reason the pair of us, even though he didn't speak that much English, it was a bit of a bizarre relationship. Uh, we used the GPS on my bike to try and cut through the various pieces on the in the Sahara Desert, and we, and we got lost for three days. And uh, the, when your food starts to grind with bits of uh, uh, sand, when we, for, when we when we saw the first place that would sell real food in quite a few days. Hence, why we ate there, which was probably the bad decision. But when 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 you're really that hungry, you thought this is going to be a, a great uh, well first meal in a few days, which is certainly memorable, but for all the wrong reasons. So, <laughs> so so when you going back to the fuel crisis thing, when when you finally decide that you you can be towed no more or want to be towed no more, yeah. and you decide to, to call it quits, why not just fly your bike to South America and sort of continue on? So you're telling me that now. If I had, the, if I had the the wherewithal, because you you forget that that traveling. Well, you don't forget because you know yourself. But on 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 a on a motorcycle trip, 
it's mind over matter as well. You can get beaten into submission to some degree where you're just not enjoying it anymore. And that's that's the problem. You're now thinking, I'm not enjoying this. This is not as fun as uh, a certain uh, a writer of a great book was le- led me to believe. You know, the, mm-hmm. the T's and C's of this the, this this uh, trip is now not being fulfilled. I am not enjoying myself. And the- <laughs> well, well, Ted said you up with that thing of when you break down, he just sits and waits and says, I wonder who's going to come along to help me. And as if it's going to be done, it's, it's sort of like the romantic version. Yes. of Yes. Uh, and that was true on my second trip. But on the first trip, I wasn't at one with with the issues that were coming towards me. I was probably reeling against the machine far too much and thinking that this is not the trip that I thought there was going to be. So, I, you know, if I'd been a bit more zen-like and just sat on my hands and waited for things to get better and, and enjoy the experience, I think it, it would have been completed in the way that I thought it was going to be completed. But... Mm-hmm. Yeah, did, did you have a deadline? Was was that working against no, you? No, no, no. That that that's that's the sad part. I'd taken the full year to go completely nuts, and within three months, the whole thing had gone gone pear shaped. So that 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 that's the sad part. It was a case of, for some reason, I thought. Well, well, I must backtrack a little bit because there's a second reason why the fuel thing wasn't. Um, wasn't the the hundred percent killer of the trip because as news was getting back to myself and the German chap because we eventually parted ways as well that the Congo um, that there's so many waterways in the Congo so you're in a situation where you've that the the news was coming back that there was so many people were waiting at the the boat bus stops if you like to get from A to B around the waterways of the Congo because of the lack of fuel no one could use the boats. The people were, you know, were getting hundreds and hundreds deep. Trying to get anywhere was being a bit of a, a, an issue as well. So, so that that was another factor that the information from the front was telling me that even if you could make it further, you had the added benefit, or not as it as it would be of having to wait till everybody was cleared up. But that, but that's that's back to your can do mentality. It's letting you, it's letting your brain jump in uh you know when when your heart says one thing and your mind says something else are trying to get where you'd like to be and how you would get like to get there so and as and motorcycling certainly from the adventure side it's not um a bed of roses it never has been and never will be and i don't think anybody should want it to be like that because it's the bizarreness that you get yourself into that makes the the whole trip so much worthwhile so but i think I just didn't accept the bizarreness as much as I should have done. It made it, you know. So it it was basically a, a recipe, or I think I'm trying to think of the quote that someone said to me that uh, um, I think uh, was failure is just a, a recipe for for you can finish the second bit. Well, if you well can failure is just, you you just found one other, one thing that doesn't work, one way that doesn't yeah, work. Exactly, you know, it's it's uh, it's a rehearsal for 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 the, a positive outcome. It's a right. rehearsal for, for it to to work. Well, so, what I'm curious about is you spent three months there on the first attempt. You had to go back <laughs> with your tail between your legs. And yeah, I'm wondering what your friends said, those ones that you sort of grinned at when well, you left and said, see, I told you I was going to do this. Yeah, when you have an office, when you have a party of all the photographers in Scotland that that, that, are, that you've, you've mentioned to this continuously that you were going to get it done, and then you come back and then you've, you know, you, there's a few, there's a couple of stories there to tell, but... 
the end product wasn't achieved, then it's not good. And, and I think that that was definitely with heavy heart that stuck with me for quite a while. And I thought, well, this is not going to happen again. So it's it's one of these things. Again, the, 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 the chit-chat was raised many times that I am going to do this again. But people, uh, obviously, that I was friends with uh, and knew me at work, thought there was a touch of cry wolf there because you've, you've mentioned it so much. You've had a, 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 an attempt at it. But it's... I just said it's a recipe for success. You know, your first failure, like anything, you know, when anybody tries to go anywhere, and they and they and they they fail, at least they've got the basis to start again because they know what they're going to do the next time around. So, so that's the way I, I sort of well tried mentally to tell myself that that was the way it was going to go. So. We're going to take just a short break to thank a couple of sponsors that helped bring this episode to you today. But stay with us because we get a lot more to this story coming up. When the temperature drops when you're riding, it's usually your hands and feet that are the first things to get cold, especially if you're eating up some miles and you're sitting there, your feet are on the pegs, exposed to the wind and rain, mud. But once your feet get cold, you know how difficult it is to get them warmed up again. I mean, even your hands aren't so bad. You can rub them together, put them by heat, but your feet, it just seems like they don't want to warm up. It's uncomfortable. The cold affects your ability to ride and probably will shorten your day's fun. Now, I'll tell you something I've learned from doing things in the outdoors in all weather, all seasons, the cold, wet, summertime heat doesn't matter. It's especially important when I was guiding wilderness trips. This is it. You need to keep yourself healthy, warm, and dry rather than allowing yourself to get worn down, hungry, wet, and cold. Because once you're in that state, it takes far more to get yourself back to normal than if you'd prevented it from happening in the first place. And because your feet are so vulnerable to the cold, you should begin with the best socks you can get. And I'll tell you, the best socks I've ever tried are Pearly's Possum Socks, the socks that I wear now. Pearly socks are thick and soft, which helps with foot fatigue and and heavy boots. But most importantly, they're the warmest socks that I've ever had the pleasure of wearing. Even in summer, I'm either wearing a pair in the summertime or I have a pair in my pannier for backup. Pearlies are made of a blend of merino wool and possum fur. Merino wool has been in my cold weather toolbox for many, many years. I, I love it for a number of reasons. One is the incredible warmth with merino wool. The other is the stink resistance. It's just unbelievable how much sweat the, the merino wool can take and not stink. But this blend that Pearlies has with merino wool and possum fur, uh, it's just another step up. It's warmer, more comfortable than just straight merino wool. I wish Pearlies would start making sweaters. That would be awesome. I mean, I would love to have a Pearlies sweater. Pearliespossumsocks.com. The link is in the show notes and of course on our website as well. Keep your feet warm in the cold with the best cold weather sock made specifically for motorcyclists by Pearlies Possum Socks. Pearliespossumsocks.com and make sure when you deal with them, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. ever notice when you drop your bike one of the contact points is your foot pegs well that's just one of the reasons you want a quality foot peg so you don't have to stand your bike up and wonder how bad your foot peg is keep in mind that foot peg is your main connection between you and the bike when you're standing for slow speed maneuvers ims products has designed from the ground up 
a series of adventure motorcycle pegs from extra-wide platforms like the ADV-1 and 2 on down to the core Enduro. And when they did, they built them with the same high standards they use for the race gear that they're so well known for. I mean, just drop by any off-road racetrack and you're going to see IMS logos all over the place. That's for good reason quality. These aren't just wider or larger foot pegs. They're foot pegs that are designed for adventure motorcycles, in particular using cast certified 17-4 stainless steel, their watershed and staggered tooth design. They have developed incredible performance for handling your adventure motorcycle, given the added leverage, the correct pivot points, and traction that keeps your feet placed where they should be. IMSproducts.com. Make sure that anytime you're dealing with them, make sure you throw in there that you've, you've heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. IMSproducts.com. What's type 1 diabetes? Well, you and I, well, I didn't know what it was. And uh, I didn't really know anybody that had it. I didn't know what it did, why you got it, and, 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 and how people come to have it. So uh, f- for me, I think it was probably um, 10 years after my failed attempt, uh, I caught a cold, you know, just the average cold uh, that anybody would get in the street. And for some reason, the uh, attacked that major organ of the pancreas. Uh, so made it uh, not work. It could have gone for the heart or the kidneys or anything else, but for some reason it went, went for that. Just a cold. Just a cold, just an average uh, wintertime sniffles, and my immune system might have been on the the sort of not happy side, you know, working late nights and all the rest of it, just the usual scenario of, of working shifts at a newspaper, and uh, uh, just felt a bit groggy, and then started to have these weird symptoms of wanting to go to the bathroom all the time, and I'm not overweight by any means, you know, uh, average height of a Scotsman, all this carry on, just just your usual, you know, run of the mill. And uh, uh, this, uh, unfortunately, the GPs, the general practitioners, your doctors misdiagnosed it three times, just thought it was uh, antihistamine sort of thing, even though I don't have any allergies to to, to grass and such. So they were chasing the wrong uh, outcome. And it wasn't until I started Googling my symptoms a bit more. You know, this is a good few weeks to a few months into what I was having. And uh, for some reason, I thought, well, I'm type two, you know, uh, I've obviously been sitting at my desk too much, you know, there's uh, exercise maybe wanting and all the rest of it. Presented this information to the GP, the general practitioner, and they looked a bit concerned, took my blood reading and I was to the roof, I think. Uh, blood should be between, between uh, three and seven. My blood uh, grouping was 28, so I was sort of uh, not far off a diabetic coma and then uh, lapsing into one of them. So it was just this weird scenario. So everyone I've mentioned to said, you're the most unlikely person to be a type 1 diabetic. But but you you had to diagnose it. Your doctor didn't diagnose it in Google. How I mean, the reason I ask about this because I'm not surprised because Elizabeth does this all the time. She always checks her symptoms if we have anything. Yes. Always check it online. Always do the research whether it's online or in books. And we've always done that, especially Elizabeth has, because we find that you just if you're just going to go in and trust the doctor right off the bat, not that they're bad, but they got a lot on their mind and they're and you're a body that they have to sort of dig into yes. through you what you're telling them. I, I totally agree. Think, thinking that every doctor was a sort of a, 
uh, a house uh, TV show character, the fact you don't watch TV, you probably will go straight through that. that wow, that thank concept. you for that, because I didn't get, <laughs> I thought you meant a house doctor or something, but I, yeah, I get now uh, that must be a TV show. I get yeah, it. A TV show of about, as a, as a, an American doctor played by someone from the UK that uh, can diagnose everyone by just looking at them and comes to these weird conclusions through bits of snippets of information. And I thought most practitioners were like that they had a calling i've never been i haven't had anything wrong with me i've never broken any bones as such i've, I've not had any issues whatsoever so i expected them to, to to have this sort of looking over the rim of their glasses moment where they could tell you right away what it was but unfortunately that didn't come to fruition so i think that the the the, the the few months gap that I had from from being uh, initially having the symptoms to to being diagnosed, I don't think the pancreas could have been saved. But by the time I had any any insulin to try and stop or halt the the internal antibodies of of, uh, of ourselves being destroyed by my own body, you mean if you, if you if it was discovered right off the bat, it wouldn't have been in time. It's, I'm sure it's up for debate, but right. the, the the situation I think was that the body was thinking that, that this organ is 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 uh, you know is a bad yeah and, and and is being attacked internally uh, is just one of these weird scenarios that you get and so not really meeting anyone and I still haven't really met that many people that are that are type one I think we are probably two percent of. Uh, you know the population of the world. You know, type two is 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 seems to be the one that gets the limelight because it's a uh, there's far bigger uh, um, parts of the population that that, have, uh, that are uh, that are type two. And I always say jokingly, I'd give my left arm to be type two because you could run it off. You know, you could really reverse the the the, the implications of being type two in most cases if uh, if if you put in the, the hard yards and just watch your diet. So, so, so type two is is non permanent damage. Type one is the damage is done. And you have to deal with what's what you're living like. Yes, type two can turn into type one if you don't really do the you know take care of yourself and get yourself organized. Right. But type uh, you know type one you're you're incurable from from more or less when the, when the symptoms become too far gone from what I've read and talked to other people from that point of view. But the majority of type ones are born with it. So as a type one, what do you, and, and I'm asking this because it, it's germane to what we're going to talk about in a few minutes. As a type one, what do you have to do to maintain yourself? Well, uh, now being insulin dependent is is a weird scenario as well. So you you have two, di- two types of insulin. You have a background insulin and you have a, a, a fast acting insulin. So I loved how the, the head of his department uh, explained it to me and, and, motorcycle and mechanical terms, which I thought was quite funny, <laughs> that basically the background insulin is the motor oil of my body. As long as I have enough units to sustain me for the whole 24 hours, you'll be okay. And then as soon as I eat anything, the fast acting insulin, a different type of insulin is injected in your body to cover that amount of insulin that uh, that, that you need to um, get rid of the food that you've just consumed. So, so what's the analogy with the motorcycle there with the, the fast acting one? Well, the, the fast acting one is like the fuel is what you're going to burn up immediately. Right. And and the, and the oil is the, the background insulin, which can just keep you ticking over so you don't seize up. That's just great. That. I mean, I was I was trying to you know, pull this into the, the motorcycle sphere, but you've done it right there. And thank you, doctor, yeah. for that one. 
So he was quite funny because he he was he's the, uh, one of the best physicians that I've had because he never when you I'd go and see him once every six months to a year, and he'd never talk about anything uh, to do with the condition. He would just say, you know, it's crap, isn't it? You know, and then we'd get on to talking about my would be adventures if I could get my act together and and do another motorcycle trip. So I have to really inject one big injection of uh, uh, which is quite a lot of fluid into the body you know that comes from luckily we've done away with uh, the where you would get the bottle and you'd stick the syringe in and pull it back like you see in the films and tv or, or 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 if you read about it now there's pens which are already filled and you just use them up to the pens finish the pens finished so so it's quite good from that so you know you're you're using quite a lot for background and then then uh, smaller amounts for your your fast acting as soon as you have something to eat. So it can be quite a quite a, a sort of weird way of working where you're, you're you're trying to juggle how much you need to, your body needs to take without uh, um, going over the score. Because if you over medicate, then you put yourself into a situation where you, where it could be quite dicey. You're trying to balance the the, the sugar level in your blood by giving exactly. yourself injections throughout the day, and you're having to monitor exactly. this as well. Yeah, yeah. The other analogy I say when I explain it to people, I, I say my body doesn't have a radiator anymore. I could basically just overheat with the amount of glucose that's in my body because I, I, it would just go up and up and up until I go into a, a coma. Well, well, right now for you, so when you yes. ride, you have to carry this insulin with you. Now, does it yes. have to be kept cold as well? Yes, that that that. Luckily in Scotland, we don't get into the dizzy heights of of tropical temperatures. So the ambient temperature is almost like a fridge, and most days, depending on what, what season you're in, so it's not not such a bad thing. But uh, yeah, trying to keep it cold is a, a is a is a bit of a a difficult exploit because you're thinking, right? Well, if you're going, if you're just going, you know, uh, an overnight stay, then there's not really much difficulty because. Uh, there's a thing called uh, a Frio bag, which which I only find out because some of the long distance rowers that go across from the UK to to, to the states and uh, and the like use these bags. If, if it seems to be a few uh, athletes have been uh, type one as well, and they've used the bags which you just soak in water. They become crystallized and they almost become a mini fridge, and you stick the the insulin uh, pens in there and they keep cold for uh for for the the period that you're using them for so and that's reusable can you just re-soak it and use it again just just stick stick them back in again so that really was my first uh thoughts about how to keep any insulin uh cold and thinking about uh, a trip that i wanted to do in the future Well, well, you had two issues there i mean that i that i see with it one of them is keeping it cold the other one is carrying drugs across borders i mean if, if we're talking a long trip Yes. Well, I, I've I've always I've gone on holiday to Europe and vase and from from your your clinician they'll give you a bit of paper to say that uh, you're carrying drugs for personal reasons because you are uh, diabetic and you need mm-hmm. insulin to stay alive. So so that that was so I've, I've been to you know many through many X-ray machines and through customs and 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 I've had always enough and more to keep me going in case there was a major incident in this country that I was visiting on holiday. You know be it aircraft or whatever it may be not turning up and you couldn't get back when you thought you would get back so I always try and keep more than I would need just for those complications so I thought well this is going to be weird you know if if you if you have another trip that you're going to organize then how much are you going to take where are you going to stick it on the bike how are you going to keep it cold 
what's the customs guy going to say because you're almost like a drugs mule because you're carrying so much then uh that was an issue because I, I didn't when i when i i thought when i when i had the opportunity to do this trip again i did not want to stop and try and find um uh, any insulin in, in different parts of the world i wanted to carry enough for six months with me but then that's when it got weird because when you see six months of insulin, it's a, it fills a 10-litre pack and it weighs, it weighs uh, the same weight as a medicine ball. I don't know if you've ever seen you know, the medicine balls you used to train with. Something, it's like a dumbbell. It's just it's really heavy. And I thought, okay. So when, when I left, uh, when, when I was getting the trip organised, um, and putting the stuff together. Let, so, let's just, just just be clear here. What we're talking about here is is a, another trip you've decided to do. Just talk briefly about that for a minute. Well, the the, the first trip that ended in, in, in mighty chaos, but I had funny stories to go along with it. I thought, well, once the, 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 the I got back into work and got diagnosed 10 years after the original trip, and I thought, wow, this is an omen to get myself sorted out. So, uh, uh it came in um, uh, the same sort of year that I had to move house for, for work reasons. So I moved into the house, got organized, and I thought, right, before I start work for real again, can I do this trip? So within three months of, of uh, finish unpacking all my crap from work and from cameras and this, that, and the next thing, I'd hit the phones I managed to uh, get my bike uh, sorted out for export uh, into a few countries. And I thought, right, I have now completed everything that I wanted to do in three months. And I'll go over the the, the route and stuff. But the, the whole thing sort of snowballed because I thought I've, I can't leave this any longer because as you get – um, there will be a, a definitive moment where your pancreas uh, obviously works with no output whatsoever, and you're having this issue of having to inject more and more and more, depending on what you eat, and, and that becomes an issue in itself. So you're trying to uh, make the final push, and, and that's what really set me up for this. I thought, right, I can create a six-month window and get going. And three months previous to that, when it, when it, when it just it just there was a light bulb moment going off in my head, I thought, right, okay, we're going to do this. And we're going to do it now. And it was the bike was in the same condition it was. I've been riding it off and on, but all the stuff that I'd, that I'd had for Africa was all there. All the stuff that was that I was going to take on the trip was all there. All the panniers were all, everything was. Oh, so yeah, everything was just, left left. It was all packed, ready to go. It was yeah. It was it was all there. It just sort of you know uh, it was it, because unfortunately I had a, I started having a bit of a love affair with the, the XTZ 750, and I now have seven of them. So there's. <laughs> There's, there's, it's the best bike, adventure bike ever built. And and don't get me started on other bikes because I love other bikes, but, oh. So I knew, I knew there was no, there was no issue of what bike I was going to, to ride. It's the case of, of, of getting it ready for the build, you know, redoing all the bits and pieces and, 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 you know, powder coating the frame and just getting it back, you know, going through everything because I was scared uh, when it came to uh, exporting, importing in other countries. If they saw a raggedy old 1991 bike, how they would view it from from an import-export point of view and hit you with various issues about cleanliness and whatnot. So Mm -hmm. I made an effort to to, to sort of start from scratch. 
uh, didn't touch the internals of the engine. That that had the same clutch from 1991. I didn't bother with that. It was just basically the externals. Uh, trying to, um, if you've ever tried to charge a mobile phone up and have the lights on and have a, a, a set of heated grips on a 1991 <laughs> Yamaha motorcycle, it's not a pretty sight. Uh, on the trip that we're just about to talk to, I managed to melt the, the, the wire harness in three different places because it couldn't take it. It couldn't take the, the mobile phones being charged and the headlights being on and, God forbid, stick the, the heated grips on. That was a luxury that you really didn't want to get involved in unless you really needed it. Mm-hmm. So it was it was quite bizarre from that point of view. As the trip started to come closer and closer, um, the, the shipper wanted the bike 10 days earlier than, than I'd uh, anticipated. So I had no idea what the bike was like fully laden i had no idea what the bike was like with all the electrics on i had no idea what the bike was like in in uh, face-to-face combat i'd ridden it naked without any stuff on it checked the, the fuel economy by just doing your your, your stick and fuel in and working out how many miles you did because there's no fuel gauge on it and uh, and then taking it from there so uh when i got to ride the bike for real was when it came out the crate at the other end so it just nuts to say the least. So that that was, if that was how the trip was going to start, talk about being ill prepared. Uh, it was 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 unbelievable. So the yeah, well, well give give a, give us a, a sort of a, the quick overview of your your entire route. Okay, so the, the 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 bike was shipped from from the UK to New York, and then I rode the bike down to towards Florida and across uh, through Arizona up to California up through Oregon uh, and then into uh, Canada and then through British Columbia up to the Yukon. And then uh, there's another story there. I'd love to have gone right up to, to towards the top, but time was was pressing because uh, I was flying the bike three times. So I, when I flew the bike from, from the UK to, to America, it was being flown again from Canada to uh, Australia. I was spending six weeks in each continent doing as much time and effort on each continent. And then uh, f- I flew the bike again from um, uh, from Australia, from Sydney to South Korea. And then from South Korea, I caught the ferry to Vladivostok. And from there, rode from Siberia across towards Moscow and then down uh, back into Europe and caught the second ferry of the trip from uh, Holland to Newcastle in England and then drove back up to Scotland. Why so, the why the change in route from your first one? First one you head right down into Africa. Now are you avoiding it? Yes. <laughs> the, 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 I'll definitely do it again, but I, I thought because I've only got this short six month window, uh as much as I love Africa and I love Africa, Africa was nuts and it was like I'm sure uh, the Yukon and Alaska and, and various other parts of the world before things took off is just such a, a wonderful experience. You know, everybody's been great in every country I've ever been to, and I've never had any problems anywhere, that, that it was just that if I put myself in the situation where the bike is booked onto cargo flights, I've got no way of out, of, out of it. I just have to be from one place to the, to, 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 to the other. I just have to be there. Once I get to, to, to that uh, part of the world, I just have to get to the exit point and the ex- and, and, and whichever time scale I've got in that particular country, which was roughly about six weeks or so, then I'd move on to the next step and then the next step and the next step. And then we'd, we'd eventually get back uh, around to, to, to Scotland again. So so that there was a bit of that, the sort of 
you could you could always you could always view it from a point of view that this was my training wheels exercise of getting back into uh, adventure motorcycling because of my condition and if i can do this then i'm ready for for bigger and, and weirder things to happen later on so, you know so you, so you called me out on that and i, and I appreciate that my uh, african unadventure which should have been more adventurous <laughs> and will be again because it's definitely a place that i want to do and and, and do it with gusto the next time so uh, as as a sort of alluded to there the reason why i wanted to go back to new york and i say back is because when i was 18 i went across america on on an ltd uh, uh, uh motorcycle i'm trying to remember what it was the same one that prince used in his video uh purple rain you're expecting me to know this i, I, don't, uh, I don't know what one it is <laughs> <laughs> well i know you stopped watching tv and video a while back but you would have you, i don't you think i've seen the video much. well a good friend of mine gave me a motorcycle, which uh, which was a 1979 bike, which had never turned a wheel and never really gone anywhere. Uh, and as a student, uh, because if we must get back to my – everything has got a motorcycle connection with me, unfortunately, in life. With, with my 125 adventure going to Germany and not seeing a, a beer festival that I wanted to see, which I still haven't seen, which is another reason why I should really go back to Germany. But I met an American girl there who was there with a friend, and she said to me – why don't you come to the States? So I sold my 125, uh, took me a year to make the money. I went to work in a summer camp, which is, you know, I think that uh, Americans have, you know, I'm sure you're familiar with them, the the, the weird and wonderful uh, summer camps of America. And You're talking canoeing, swimming camp. Yes, all that. And I was the motorcycle instructor, believe it or not, for four before. So I, I was in a world of happiness where I could deal with oil and motorcycles on a daily basis and teach kids how to ride quads and all this sort of stuff when I was 18. I had no idea what I was doing, but when you're 18, you always think you do. So so the 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 upshot of that is what I managed to to, to crisscross America for eight months on a 1979 uh, automatic uh, motorcycle. So the reason why I went to New York with this 1991 bike is because it was a 30-year anniversary of crisscrossing the States with this motorcycle and I wanted to meet the same people that I'd met 30 years ago. It was the first week in May of 2018. That was the very same day I landed in New York for the first time in 1988. So I was at JFK on the very same uh, day that I was there in 1988 to start a whole new bizarre experience with a motorcycle involved. Uh, And so I thought it was fitting to, to do that. And that's why I sort of, that's why this sort of trip you could say it was the easier way out than going to Africa sort of evolved. And I thought, well, if I'm going to see all the people in the States that I, that I worked with and I saw in the 80s, then uh, I I might as well just keep going uh, west and go home that way. Where'd you camp on your first uh, night in the States? Well, there's a story. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and why would you camp there? I mean, you're going to have to set this one up. Why wouldn't you? So <laughs> I sort of the uh, I've never flown a motorcycle in a crate before. So that was an experience. So luckily the bike was sitting there in a crate. As long as I'd I'd go to customs and fill out the paperwork and 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 see the various officials and uh, once I tracked down the official that was doing my paperwork, uh, uh, a nice chap, a nice American guy, very New York with that New York moustache. They seemed to give out all the officials and <laughs> had that very official tone. But I don't think the guy had ever left the customs office or saw daylight because he, his sense of humor was a bit lacking. But uh, eventually 
we got through all the paperwork and he couldn't believe why I was importing a motorcycle for six weeks and then going on again to somewhere else. He thought I was just crazy. So once I tried to explain to him, he kept telling, asking me if I was in a race. And I thought, <laughs> no, no, I'm not in a race, but it's going to be like a race because I have to be in other places for other time. But I just, I just have to be quick about this. So uh, it took me a good eight hours. As I don't know if that's uh, good or bad to get the paperwork all done and pay the fees and get the bike released. So once once the bike was presented to me, still in the crate at JFK at the bonded warehouse, I set about pulling it apart. But I didn't have any tools. The tools were inside the crate. And I asked the guys who were there, who were all very weird and looking at me like I'd just dropped from out of space and, and, and kept coming up and asking me questions. I thought it was nice. But I wanted some tools from them, a couple of crowbars or something, just to get the bike out. And they said, everything's on the bonded side of the warehouse. And I said, you couldn't bring me tools. They said, no, you have to be bonded to go into the bonded warehouse to bring the bonded to. So this got a bit weird. So I had to get a bit Neanderthal and just start pulling this crate apart with my bare fingers, which uh, which took a bit of time. And uh, it got to about midnight and I was halfway through putting this bike together. And flights were coming and going and dropping stuff off. Cargo was leaving and disappearing. And I'd, I'd flown from, from Scotland to Manchester, from Manchester to New York. So I was shattered. I'd been on the go for really 24 hours. I hadn't eaten anything, you know, I was just all over the place. And I think, right. So I spoke to one of the the, the, the handlers of the cargo and he, I said to him, uh, where can I sleep? And I, I pulled a tent out and I pointed to the tent. I says, can I put a tent up? And he goes, why not? And he said, he pointed round the corner to the side of the building, right next to a live runway. There was a small shaded tree, uh, which I think uh, with all the grass had been walked off with everybody smoking, I think, and their lunch break. And uh, I put the tent up there. I thought, I am so tired. I don't care. I don't care if this is going to, if the cops are going to go nuts or what the situation is. And I put the tent up and I've had the best night. I was out of it. I was. And you slept through this? Like absolutely knackered. I was so tired. I threw, you know, I, I, I tried to hide the tent as, as much as I could. So, because there was people coming and going from the car park and obviously patrols from police and all the rest of it. I thought this is I, the last thing I want is to end up in jail on the first night because, you know, I've camped next to a live runway. And uh, uh, so I just, I bit the bullet and just jumped in the tent in the sleeping bag and I was snoring my head off before, you know, I was just out of it. And when I woke up, as the sunlight was coming up and I couldn't believe that uh, nobody had come round to challenge me about the tent. Uh, I packed it all away and uh, I spent another three hours putting all the stuff back on the bike that I'd never tried out before because this this was his maiden voyage. The maiden voyage with um, with all the stuff. And unfortunately, <laughs> the, the negatives of having your own crate is you can put as much crap in it as you like because they don't challenge you because it's your crate. Once you've paid for it, you could give uh, the, the, the anything you like. So I took a lot of stuff on the plane with me and I already had a lot of stuff on the bike. So as ever... As, as I was well aware the first time I did it, I had far too much stuff on the bike. But mm. as a good Scotsman, I don't want to give anything away because I might need it. That you, that terrible, terrible. <laughs> so you piled it to, all on the bike. So it was like a land yacht. There was so much crap on the bike, and and uh, and once once I put all the stuff on the bike, because you know you know what it's like. It takes a few weeks on any trip for stuff to find its way to the right place on the bike where you can find it and then you know it's even and all the rest of it. So I thought, right, okay, 
let's let's go. So I finally put the the all the stuff on the bike and I waved goodbye to, to the to the best camping spot in New York. If you're ever next to JFK, stick a tent up. So <laughs> it's uh it's it was incredible. So I hit I hit American traffic for the first time on a on a UK registered bike with too much crap on it. Uh, and uh, having to find fuel because, unfortunately, because the I took it for red that you're only supposed to leave a third of, um, uh, I think, uh, a couple of litres of fuel in your bike when it goes to be shipped. Mm-hmm. But now shipping the bike three times, nobody cared. Uh, there's no uh, fuel indicator on the bike and nobody's going to check. So I'm trying to find a fuel station one fumes because I I I I've taken the handbook of shipping motorcycles to his gospel. Followed it to the letter. Yeah. Eventually get to the to the place. Well, luckily it wasn't too far away that I found a place of fuel and filled up. And everybody kept telling me that, oh, oh, if you're gonna fill up an old bike, fill it with premium fuel and do all the stuff and all the rest of it. And I thought, oh, okay then. So I I I from for my first of 200 fuel fuel stops on the trip, um, I filled up on 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 expensive gasoline, and I had two 10 liter jerry cans on the on the bike as well. So we were just under 50 liters of fuel on the bike. It was like a mobile bomb. There was so much fuel on it. I saw the the gas can mounted on the side. It looks like one of those big military style steel cans. Yeah, yeah, steel, steel, ten liter cans. Like everybody asks me in Scotland, where did you get those cans? You can't buy them anywhere. And, and, and someone gave me one, and I found one online somewhere else because <laughs> it's always twenty liter cans you find everywhere else. They're lovely cans, and the reason why I, f- I put them there is because uh, I read a book, and I'm trying to remember the guy's name. He rode a, a, a an XTZ six sixty across Africa, and he put two of those cans at the front. And I saw that picture on the cover of his book, and I thought, spot on. I'm nicking that idea. So uh, that's that's what we want. So I, I did that. And this is the first time that I uh, had the bike fully laden with panniers and jerry cans and uh, a main fuel tank. So you couldn't make this up. So I'm wobbling into traffic with all this crap on, thinking, let's go to New York and rush hour, which is probably the worst idea I've ever had. The bike hated the fuel. It was just didn't like it at all. But why did you think you needed that much fuel anyway? I, I, I was, I was, it's an adventure. I had no idea what I was going to get into. And for some reason, I filled every, uh, every area of that bike with fuel. <laughs> I, I felt like a new settler getting into another, another part of the world. You were picturing, you were picturing the U.S. was somewhat underdeveloped <laughs> and shy well, of yeah. fuel stops. See, I know what it's like with the fuel stops in New York. You know, the, uh, my the, the XTZ was not a frugal bike by any means. Uh, it really does like to, to drink fuel a little bit. So I, I thought, yeah, I didn't have a GPS. My phone wasn't working properly. My, my, my GoPro, I couldn't find and charge up. So the whole thing was, was a complete disaster from start to start right away. I had no hotel booked in New York. I had nothing. I had already slept next to the runway. So I thought, and I was still a bit, because only I had six hours sleep, so I was still a bit groggy. And, you know, as you, as you pointed out, it probably wasn't a wise idea to fill up, but I filled up every 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 litre that I could because uh, I was excited to be there and the bike was actually still running. 
and uh, uh, and I headed into New York, and and I have never sat in such mental traffic for ages going nowhere and wobbling between cars. And, and I'm trying to remember, can you filter? Is it against the lot filter? I haven't really read up in the rules about whether you can filter or not. Eventually made it to uh, um, uh, the tunnel, the Holland Park Tunnel. So Holland Park, Holland, the Holland Tunnel. So, and got to Battery Park where you can see the Statue of Liberty. And I spoke to two cops uh, and, and, and you've got, and I've got to have the caveat that this was the hottest day of May that New York in, in 2018 had ever had. It mm. was tropical. I'm in full leathers. The bike hates the fuel. There's too much stuff on the bike. None of my uh, gear is ready to take pictures. I can't document the event because I'm getting annoyed with the traffic. I can't park up anywhere because there's nowhere to park. I have no idea where I'm going. Uh, the cops say, well, you can go. The best thing, if you want a picture, because I tried to document this, was was to go across the Brooklyn Bridge with the bike. I went across the Brooklyn Bridge, did a three-point turn, went back over the other side of the Brooklyn Bridge, back in towards uh, the central of uh, New York. And I said, I've had enough of this. This is driving me nuts because <laughs> I stopped every 10 feet for a traffic light. What is it with the bottom of New York where traffic lights, you can see the rows and rows and rows of traffic lights and nobody goes anywhere. <laughs> so the bike's overheating. I'm overheating. I haven't had a sleep. I haven't had any food. This is a shambles. So I had friends in Delaware and I, and I got straight back on the tunnel again and shot straight down to Delaware and stayed the night there. So that was my first day in New York. So, and I regret that. I wish I'd actually spent a bit of time and, and gone round. And, and, you know, I've been to New York a few times, but my bike, my bike that I've cherished and loved, the bike that, that I've, I've done, I've done many laps of Loch Ness on. I've been to Africa with it. I've been, you know, all over bits and pieces. And I, I wanted to spend more time and really, and really enjoy the experience. But there is a point, I think, in any trip when there's too many vehicles, when you love to ride a bike, and it's and it's nose to tail traffic. It's the last place you want to be. Mm. So, was there a point at the, during this before you got to your friend's house where you were thinking maybe this is going to turn out the same as the last trip? No, because there was going to be less people uh, wanting to trade handguns for fuel with me, as far as I was aware. <laughs> so there was going to be there's going to be less of that. So uh, you know, and I thought this this would be more of a, a sort of as I said before, a, a toe dipping exercise where I could really see what my body was going to achieve with the medication on it. And, and I had, um, I had the, 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 all the medication strapped to the front of the bike above the handlebars, uh, sorry, above the headlights. Did you bring it so on? That was, I brought six months worth. I thought I was going to be challenged. See, the, when I left Inverness to fly to Manchester, to fly to New York, I thought the bottom of this plan is going to fall out Luckily in Scotland, but luckily at the first x-ray machine that all these drugs are going to go through. And then they're going to ask me what on earth I'm up to. So once I, I achieved uh, the first x-ray machine and nobody cared, I thought, okay, this is not really going to be an issue. Mm -hmm. The issue is how to keep the insulin alive as in, as in insulin will go off because of heat changes from low heat to high heat to and, you know, you're trying to keep a, a refrigerator-style event where you keep everything together, where it's not going to go bad. So that, so that was 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 the next challenge from that point of view. So mounting the the drugs on the front of anybody listening to this will think this is this this this, this weird 
uh, discussion about how to uh, take drugs on a motorcycle from one, one <laughs> country to another. So I mounted the drugs uh, just above the headlight and it was into the wind all the time, hopefully getting cool air. It was inside a stuff sack, 10 litres, and then they had individually wrapped inside these Frio bags, which would keep it cold. And and after a few days of not touching it, sticking my hand in and finding it was the same temperature, even though we'd been across the Atlantic, we'd been, we slept in a tent next to the airport, we'd uh, gone through a New York uh, uh, nose-to-tail traffic, it had been scorched, you know, so, so I thought, well, this plan could actually probably, you know, work on the fact we've managed to get all six months worth of supply uh, on one bike. And the weight of that, that as well, you know, didn't help the handling of the bike either because of the of the fact there was there was so much weight over the front wheel plus the two jerry cans. Uh, you know, so I thought, well, the, the positive, I suppose, is that I'm going to be using the drugs on a daily basis, and I'm going to deplete the amount, and hopefully the the weight will not have an adverse impact on the front tire, as unfortunately it did, because I've I've never done so many front tires in because of the weight of the, the drugs and the fuel at the same time. Do you know what the maximum weight capacity is of your motorcycle? Your maximum gross vehicle weight? I'm sure I was well over it. I, I think, yeah, I, think I was carrying I was carrying three people plus luggage, yeah. basically. Yeah. So it was definitely uh, a, a, not a good state of affairs because I could have been more radical in tossing stuff. And when I was listening to one of your podcasts, I think I was on Siberia at the time, it was about whether to have uh bring food bring cooking cutlery or cooking stuff or not bring cooking stuff and i never used any of my i, I used it twice to make tea because uh, because it was really cold one morning and I, I got food wherever i went there is no need to bring any uh stove stuff at all my bowl was basically a soda cup i reused a plastic spoon that i got on my very first stop in New York, and a soda cup, which I kept for days on end and used it as a bowl for drinking, for eating cereal, because I just ate the packet, the packet of cereal that came in, it was its own own device, and then you put the cereal straight into the cup, put the milk in, away you go, and then I'd squeeze the cup up and stick it in my tank bag and I'd use it for any other food that had to be in a cup at any point. And, I, and I've had all this lovely kit that I'd taken across Africa before that I'd never used. It's just pointless. Very nice. It's absolutely pointless. And anybody, I will never take any foodstuffs again because I will make an implement out of anything to eat with. Whatever it came in, whatever they gave me, I will make it into a, an eating device of some description. So there's no need for it. So that so that was funny. Listening to that, I thought it was very funny because I thought, yeah, it's, you can buy food anywhere or you can have something cold on you. Uh, and so I just rolled with it when it came to early morning Whatever I found that day, I ate. If I didn't find anything, I didn't find anything. I just move on from that point of view. So um, it's um, my my shambolic way of adventure riding. It really does carry forth through this whole trip, and that's the the I think is the bit that I embraced the most because it was shambolic. I enjoyed it even more because the stuff that happened to me you couldn't make up. It was just weird. Well, so, you, you carried a load of fuel with you, as you're talking about there. At one point, you ran into trouble because of the ethanol in the fuel. Can you talk about that? Um, the issue with, with ethanol and fuel, we've got it in the UK. It's starting to come in. They're about to put even more in it because it seems to be a good thing, people think. But I touched very little on the motorcycle. The motorcycle had its original clutch, its original cam chain. Uh, the 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 carbs 
had put in new jets, but they used the same diaphragms from 1991. I had no reason not to use them. There's nothing wrong with them. But it wasn't until I was cutting through Siberia that all of a sudden the bike wouldn't overtake anything. And uh, in the middle of nowhere in, in, in the, the woods, because Siberia seems to have the, a lot of trees, uh, they... Um, I took them apart and I couldn't really work out well, I couldn't work out why the bike just didn't have any pulling power. It wasn't until I started, you know, after the third or fourth dissemble, because things weren't improving, that I held the the diaphragms up to the light and I saw that there was creases in them and there was light air, there was light coming through them, so they'd obviously given way. So Eventually, I uh, uh, cutting through Siberia. Siberians are fantastic people. Great to to have stories and fun. They're, they're a lovely hosting people. I, I bought some food. I I survive on a liter of milk a day plus any other food stuffs that I can get a hold of, which is whatever it is. So every continent I went on from 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 America uh, to uh, South Korea, I had a pint of milk with me all the time until it went until it turned to cheese. You did a bit of a milk tour then, really. You could oh, probably I, do a whole piece on on just what milk was like in different continents. Yeah, loved milk. Loved milk. Loved the way that they package milk in, in Siberia. It's just weird because you didn't think it's milk when it was the way that they put it in weird packets. But yeah, so so the, the, the milk thing was definitely, it kept me going because there was some sugar in it. Uh, you know, uh, depending on what dinner was going to be like or lunch, because I'm not a big breakfast guy. So I just get up and, and ride like a maniac to the next day in a state in de- destination. So the so the, the milk thing was definitely a theme. So the, the the crossing continents and going from A to B, and I was going to get milk in Siberia as I do because it was my lunch. And the owner of the shop had never seen anybody cut across Siberia in, in a bike of that vintage, and she was very didn't speak any English. I didn't speak any Russian, and chit chat. So. She had a, a, a luckily somewhere to strip these uh, uh, carburetors down, and that's when I found the holes in them. And she took me to uh, an auto parts uh, store that, that had Russian crazy glue. I bought every type of glue that, that was imaginable because I had no idea how these uh, diaphragms were going to react to having glue on them. Because super glue tends to burn the edges of everything, and so you can't push it together; it just dissolves what you're trying to, to glue. So luckily, the first one, uh, which was Galosha, I think, for or, or Welly, Wellington boots, you know, the rubberized glue, it was the picture mm-hmm. on the packet, and I put that on it, and it worked fabulously. And I put, it, I let it set for the night. I stayed, luckily, I stayed the night with her. She was a great host, and uh, I rebuilt the carburetors, and they were fantastic. They got me all the way across Siberia, through Moscow, back through Europe, and back to Scotland, and I could still be using them today with this bizarre ring of Russian glue on them because they've still held up. <laughs> but that was the only thing that I didn't I didn't replace because why would you? Because ethanol is only a new thing that's happening in the UK, but it seems to be that I think filling up every day, and I would probably run about um, – uh, three tanks full a day or four tanks full. So I had four fill-up stops a day and obviously one or two cans in, in, in reserve if I'm in somewhere, which uh, I didn't want to spend my time looking for gas stations every five minutes. I just wanted to keep going. So I think just having the the the, the diaphragms and the carburetors with the ethanol uh, in there was, was having a, a, an effect, probably not the same effect as you would have if the bike was standing for six months, but because... I was using the bike for long distances. It was probably having an effect. 
and I think uh, eventually they gave up uh, on, on that particular continent. So it was it was one of these things. But the but the the the, the other uh, fantastic uh, issues I had, which didn't turn out to be issues, because when I had an issue, someone would turn around and give me the part I was looking for there and then, or or it would be done and dusted in, in, in no time. The same thing happened in Florida. Um, I was having these noises as the chain was going round. So when I, I I was sleeping again in my lovely tent, my 20-year-old tent that I use for Africa, um, in the Everglades, and, uh, and, and I wasn't far away from a gas station, I riveted the chain together and I needed something to cut the, the, the chain. And I went out into the car park after finding nothing in there and this guy had maintenance on his back and I said, you wouldn't believe it, but I'm from Scotland and my bike's over in the woods and I slept there last night and I need a hacksaw and, you know, you wouldn't have one and blah, blah, blah. And he goes, oh, here you go. He gave me a, a brand new hacksaw in the packet and he said, there you go. Enjoy your trip. See you later. And I just wow. him and thought, fantastic. So I, I hot-footed it back to the bike, but I spent 20 minutes trying to saw through a, a chain and I thought, this is incredible. This is not happening. Uh, way, way in the distance, there's a farmer on his truck on his tractor going back and forth. I hopped the fence, ran across to him, and I say, you wouldn't have a set of bolt cutters, would you? And then he said, uh, bolt cutters? He said, I just bought a set yesterday. I've never used them. Handed me a brand new set of bolt cutters, went straight over to the bike. The chain was off in two minutes, and I put another, uh, a brand new chain and sprocket set, which was meant for Russia, but I was in that situation that this chain was not really going to be happy from the fact it was binding. So that was one incident. You know, something similar happened in uh, in uh, in Australia, where my electrics were not happy on the bike. Uh, in LA, I had to uh, cut out all the plastic connectors because they were melting. Everything was melting. It was getting so bad. I put on two rectifiers uh, on the bike. I should have put a second wiring loom. I was going to put a second wiring loom on the bike just because I knew that this could be a, an issue that I didn't want to get involved in. But I managed to repair it. But the, 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 in Australia, my, um, uh, my USB adapter that was on the dashboard of the bike to charge up my phone and my iPods was so worn that it wouldn't stay in its, its holder. And I'm standing at the side of the road. This guy flies by in his car, does a U-turn, comes straight back towards me and, and goes, are you okay? As people do when you're stopped at the side of the road in case you're in trouble. And I said, uh, I said to him, my USB's gone. Uh, I'm in the middle of nowhere. It was more or less the outback. And uh, he said, um, oh, I'm about to chuck this one out because I'm going to get another one because mine doesn't work in my holder anymore. I said, try that. He gave me it. It worked fantastically in the holder, filled the spot. Everything was charging up again because I like to listen to my music. And I was away. That was 10 minutes by the side of the road in the middle of nowhere. And and that's that's the bizarreness that every continent that I, that I went to, it became the 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 Ted Simon stroke um, uh, Jupiter's travels, but on or you know times a thousand because it would happen instantaneously. You've done lots of traveling before, as you said, as a photographer, yes. you've been traveled all over the place. Did did this trip change the way that you felt about people or the world or you know your your experience with this sort of thing, the breakdowns, the help? Definitely every. I've met people I've had bad situations and, and our trips go wrong for various reasons because it's the people we met and, and just didn't go well. But everyone, and I mean everyone, was fantastic. 
every part of the world that, I, that it was just incredible. Uh, the amount of times I got a shower, stayed at someone's house, chit chat for dinner, just interested in the trip, wanted to know where I've been, where I'm going to. It it, it, it was incredible, and and a lot of people think that the world is a, is is a a difficult and hard place, and it can be. It can be for the situations and and, and the way that. Uh, some people react, but it, it really does cut me to the to the to the to the core when I think about all the fantastic people in every part of the world. They wanted to live their adventure through you because they'd have loved to be doing it. Because the amount of people mm-hmm. that asked me, I'd love to do that, and I said, "Well, why are you not doing it?" There was um, American police officers that were on bikes outside uh, the White House. They were going, "Oh, we'd love to do that," and I'm going, "Why? Oh, I've got kids. I've got this. I've got you know." And I go, "Well." We've all got burdens of some description, but if you don't make the time, it's you know, as I found to my astonishment that your health plays a big factor, where it, where you take it for granted and all of a sudden it can be your downfall. So you now have to another issue to deal with. Never mind just going. So if there's nothing wrong with it and you keep talking about it, then the best thing is just to push yourself right out there and go and do it. How long was this trip in total? So it was uh, it was May to uh, the end of September. So you're talking four months, um, four five months, months, five yeah, months, five okay. months in total. Yeah, was, so was, five months in total. You've done yeah. a, a long trip here. Did you feel yeah. rushed at all? Because there's a lot of people I think who, who will listen to this and think, well, that's that's really neat because that all of a sudden makes it possible. Did you find yourself feeling rushed? You feel like you're going from one place to another in this huge whirlwind. Definitely, I'd love to have spent five months in one continent rather than six weeks you know, five to six weeks, but it, it was a, a chance to do something quickly, but not too quickly. Uh, I'd love to have spent a year doing it, but because I was, I was, I was making it slightly easier. It, it can be considered slightly more difficult, but flying the bike three times just to get it from place to place, you know, and treating it more like hand luggage rather than having to think about the, the, the issues and the complications of, of taking a lovely boat ride across the Atlantic and and taking it easy and and, and doing it from there. You you did um, you did carbon offsets for this. You planted over two hundred and fifty trees. Why'd you do that? It's this. We're in this bizarre scenario. Nobody would have thought about doing that in the early two thousands and two thousands and five. And and I'm not exactly riding the most uh, uh, climate friendly motorcycle now because it is was built in the nineties and and no fuel injection, all carburation. Uh, and it can be a bit heavy on the fuel, but so it's you feel a bit guilty in some respects. You know, some people do, some people don't. And and luckily, I I, I work from home a lot, so I don't have to go anywhere that much. So my carbon footprint, apart from the planes, which were already going from A to B, so I thought roughly I was going to be doing about two hundred fuel stops. You know, so planted two hundred and fifty trees, and I thought, well, if something I'm giving back to the environment, you know that that uh, that what I've done is going to uh, um, offset a little bit of of how this bike's going to be in challenging places, uh, and and, uh, and and knowing what the carbon emissions are like in other parts of the world when you're hit in the face with those 100% diesel fumes, you you're thinking that well technology has moved on a little bit, but uh, some of the older vehicles do need a bit of a helping hand. It, it can be viewed as probably a bit pious from that point of view but it's not you know at least it was something you know I, I, 
I think that the, the world needs more trees anyway. So <laughs> there, there's no doubt. Hey, to, to, to wrap things up here, what advice would you offer for those who are interested in, in doing something similar? Just go. Don't don't keep putting it off because there was something else happening. I, when I when I when I when I said that this was going to happen within three months, every flight was booked, cargo was done for the bike, the bike was prepped. Well, it, obviously I had it in the back of my mind that the bike was going to go somewhere. So I was always doing something over the years with it. But once once it was set in stone that it was going to go, and I gave myself the deadline. The, the enthusiasm for life and to do stuff just becomes unbearable because you want to do the trip. It comes, it comes together and you finally get there at the airport and you, and you're, you know that you're going to into the unknown for this weird thing and you enjoy every day, enjoy every day. Cause I, I look back on it and I can't believe that it, it went so quickly. I think the, the, the our parting words are, don't take any cutlery. You don't need it. You'll get a plastic spoon from somewhere and that'll stay with you for, for a long, long time. Or take one metal spoon and that's it. Because I've done it twice now and I've still taken too much stuff. So, Maurice, Morris, um, <laughs> whatever whatever we're going to go with. <laughs> Great Whichever to talk to you it. and thank you for sharing part of your story. Loved it. Thank you very much. And I hope everyone who wants to go, goes don't make up an excuse. It's not worth it. That was photographer and motorcyclist Maurice McDonald from his home in Scotland. And uh, we have some photographs and some links for him in the show notes. I just want to remind you that this episode has been brought to you in part by Max BMW Motorcycles at www.maxbmw.com. Also, Best Rest Products at www.cyclepump.com, Green Chili Adventure Gear at greenchiliadv.com, and Moto Breeze Chain Oilers at motobreeze.com. Hey, you do us a great favor. If anytime you're dealing with these companies, anytime you see them anywhere, you mention that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. up another episode of adventure rider radio and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it and special thanks to our producer elizabeth martin and of course to you the listener thank you very much for listening hey if you like what we're doing here we need your support drop by our website adventureriderradio.com and click on the support button anything ten dollars or more is going to get you a sticker for your pannier anything fifty dollars or more gets you mentioned on our raw show and speaking of that our raw show that's another show you need to subscribe separately for that drop by our website check it out we've got a lot on there including the show notes for each episode and we would love to get your feedback. We've got a, a spot on the in bottom of each show notes there where you can type in what you think of the show or make your comments about it. We'd love to hear from you. Anyway, time to get out there and ride your bike. I'm Jim Martin. Talk to you next week. I'm Marissa Notier from Notier's Frontiers and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Adventure Rider Radio.